Good morning, church. It's good to be with you guys today. For some of you, even though we've continued to do this for months now, for some of you, that continues to be the longest three minutes of your week, and it's just torturous. For others of you, you could go for 30 minutes, and that'd be no big deal. But I hope that you guys enjoy that time together. Uh, It's one of my favorites during the service. Hey, like Chancellor said, if we haven't gotten a chance to meet before, my name is Ryan, along with Chancellor and Taylor. I get to serve as uh, one of the pastors here on staff. And so uh, we want to wish you guys a post-happy Thanksgiving. I pray that you enjoyed time together with family and friends. I hope that your soul was nourished through that. And now... Uh, we collectively enter into a season of waiting, a season of anticipation as we look forward to Christmas and celebrating uh, the birth of our Savior. And so with that time, we're actually kicking off our new sermon series this morning. So I'm glad you're here for that. Uh, What we're going to be doing is looking at the idea of exchanges, right? So how many of you guys in your families or in your context for Christmas, you guys do some kind of a gift exchange with people? Right? Raise your hands. How many of you are Grinches and you don't exchange gifts? Okay, that's good for you. Oh, a couple people. Wow, that's super depressing. Well, I hope, if you don't know, gift exchanges. Now, those can go one of two ways, right? And, and our families, the way that we do it is you draw names out of a bowl, and it's kind of like roulette. You don't know who you're going to get. But you know in your families that there are certain people who are great gift givers. And so when they get you you are excited because you're like, this person knows how to give good gifts. Taylor's grandma is one of those people. If grandma buys you a gift, you're scoring because she goes all out. And then there are other family members. When they get you, you know. It's like, oh, it's going to be weak. It's going to be a weak (laughs) gift game, right? And so you just brace yourself. I know it's not what the season's about, but my soul is corrupted. I'm fallen, and I actually do care about gift exchanges. And you know those people who reciprocate with weak exchanges. And so what we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks is this idea that God is inviting us in so many areas of our lives to make an exchange with him. And here's the beautiful thing as he's revealed himself in scripture and also in our own experience, that God is not a weak exchanger. That whenever we give him something, he will always give us something better in return. Right? And now for those of you who are afraid that we're going prosperity gospel on you, that's not what we're talking about. But this idea that anytime I bring something to God, in his goodness, in his nature, in his character of who he is, he will always exchange it back to me with something greater. It might not be what we anticipate, but it will always be something greater. And so as we kick it off this morning, we're going to start with the idea of God inviting us to make an exchange of expectations. And so before we dive into scripture this morning, we're going to be in Jeremiah 29. If you want to pull out scripture and start to turn there, if you don't have it, don't worry, borrow one from the pew back ahead of you and and join us in Jeremiah 29. And as you're flipping there, I also want you to be thinking about this, that in your life right now, no matter your age, no matter your stage or whatever season you're in, that you have an unmet expectation. And oftentimes those unmet expectations have to deal with with how you relate to God. That there's something going on in your life that is not going the way you expected it to go. Whether that's relational, whether that's emotional, whether it's financial, whether it's with your careers. 
There's something going on, and oftentimes we all have unmet expectations. And so here's my prayer, is that you're going to think about that, you're going you're to bring that to the forefront of your heart, and my prayer is that you're going to hold that before you, and this morning as we go through Scripture, that you're just going to allow God's Word and the truth of who He is to just bombard that unmet expectation. And my prayer is that when you do that, when we think rightly about God and His Word in terms of our unmet expectations, that that would make a difference in our lives, in our discipleship to Jesus, and in how we relate to Him. And so my prayer is that you would be thinking about that. So as we go through these texts, it's not just going to be theoretical, it's not going to be biblical knowledge alone, but it's going to be something that impacts you directly in that area that you've been dealing with God about an unmet expectation, okay? So think about that, and as you do, let's turn to God's Word this morning. We're going to look at Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 14, and I'll read for us. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They're prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them declares the Lord. But this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, but plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the gift of your teachings, of your scriptures. And Lord, they have the ability to change us, to transform us, to shape us into uh, the image of who you are. And so, Lord, I pray now that as we come before you in your word, that you would speak to us through it, that you would mold and shape our hearts, that you would reorient us where we have gone astray. And Lord, I do pray specifically with the unmet expectations that we have in our lives. Maybe we've expressed them to you. Maybe we've never mentioned them before. But Lord, I pray that your word would speak to us about those things. That we might exchange our unmet expectations for your better plan. Lord Jesus, we love you. It's for your glory that we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so here's the background of if you're not familiar with Scripture. right? In Jeremiah 29, this is at a point in Israel, God's people's history where they have strayed from their original intent. Okay, so the the people of Israel were called as a nation. They were chosen with the specific purpose of 
representing the character and nature of God to the nations with an evangelical purpose, that as they do that, that all the nations would see and discover who God is, and they would be drawn to faithfulness to God. But that was dependent upon God's people being God's people according to the laws that he had given them. And as we see throughout the Old Testament, Israel fails again and again and again and again to live up and live out the scriptures. And finally, it gets so bad that God reaches a point where he just says, okay, now we're at this place where we're going to have to kind of do a hard restart. We're going to have to send you into exile. And then when I bring you back, I'm going to bring back a remnant and I'm going to start again anew. And my, my hope and my prayer is that we can get this right again. And from that remnant, I'm going to bring my son who's going to end up being the light to all the nations. And yet this is the point in their history where they're, they're right before for you who have no idea how to use a computer when all else fails and you're just going to hit that power switch because you have no clue. That's right where we're at in Israel's history. God has tried everything to correct, to restore, to guide his people. And now they're at the point where they have to be sent into exile to really understand what God's trying to do in and through them. And so he sends them into exile. He hits that hard restart. And this is the first time since they inherited the promised land that God's people find themselves yet again wandering. They're displaced. They're confused and disoriented because for generations they have only known what it means to be God's people in God's promised land. And they lost it. And now they find themselves scattered and deported all the way to Babylon. And the remnant, this letter is addressed to those exiles who are sitting in a foreign land, confused, feeling abandoned by God, and at the core, at their heart, they long to go home. They would do anything, believe anything, if it gets them back to Jerusalem. But right now they find themselves exiled in Babylon. And so when we talk about what it means to have unmet expectations in our lives, you think about God's people in exile in Babylon. Their life is nothing but a gigantic unmet expectation. I'm supposed to be in Jerusalem. My parents were in Jerusalem. My grandparents and generations before them have been God's people in Jerusalem, and now here I am in Babylon. This is not my expectation. And here's the first thing as we start off. Let's look at verse 4, right where we started. Notice in the, in the verses before, as you read through them, in the narrative portion where the writer is summarizing what's going on with Israel, notice if we go back a few verses. Go to verse 2. Or rather, verse 1, I'm sorry. And he says this, halfway through verse 1. All the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Right? So when the writer is narrating and summarizing the events of Israel's history, what did he say? Nebuchadnezzar brought these people in exile to Babylon. And then in our passage, a few verses later, 4 through 14, this is where God speaking to the prophet. And when God speaks directly, listen to how he changes it. And, and it'd be easy for us to read over that and think nothing of it. But listen to what God says in verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to who? All those who 
I carried into exile. And then as you read through those verses, three times, God takes credit for it. You catch that? It's not Nebuchadnezzar. It's not your circumstances that have led you to this unmet expectation. It's not other people. Maybe they've wronged you. Maybe they've left you. Maybe they've stolen from you. They've wounded you. And you're left with this unmet expectation. This relationship fell apart. God, I'm not supposed to be divorced. My marriage was supposed to go the distance. Or the opposite. God, how many young Christians say this? God, I'm not supposed to be single. You have a spouse for me. I'm supposed to be married right now. I'm 19. (laughs) Okay? In biblical times, I'm done. And we look at that and we hold up these unmet expectations. And it's so easy for us to attribute unmet expectations to circumstances, to other people. Because in our minds, it it can't possibly be God's design or desire that I be where I'm at. Because God does not want unmet expectations for me. We sit here with this tension of not knowing what to do. I have unmet expectations. And my soul has a really difficult time grasping the fact that God is the one who has caused those things to be. And I will look and you will look for anything else to blame for our unmet expectations, for bad relationships, for my kids not turning out the way that they were supposed to turn out, for my job not going the distance, and now I'm unemployed. And we'll look and I want to blame and throw stones. Is it circumstance? Is it other people? Is it Nebuchadnezzar? And then God says, no, no, no. I'm the one who's put you here. You want to be in Jerusalem. I get it. That's where your expectation is. And yet you find yourself in Babylon. But I'm the one who has you there. I'm the one responsible for your unmet expectation. And I remember in my, in my old church where I was doing ministry, I was doing college ministry, but I also served with, uh, as a volunteer with the high schoolers. And so every year when I was younger, when I was in high school, we would go to summer camp. And it was a great experience, great tradition. If you grew up in the church, hopefully you got to have that too. And then I became a leader. And at my old church, summer camp was the pinnacle of the year experience. I mean, it was just a week-long bash away with your friends, and you got to learn more about Jesus in an environment away from you every day. And at our old church, one of the cool little things that we always had was we would get charter buses that would take us to camp every year. And as a 16-year-old, you feel like an NBA player rolling up because you got a charter bus. It has like a square TV six rows ahead of you, and you're watching an old VHS tape, but you don't care because you feel super cool. And you're riding in that, and that was part of the camp experience, right? And you have these cool expectations. And then in 2012, the Lord, in his sense of humor, led me here to GGFC, where I became the youth pastor. And in my first time at bat, Taking our kids to camp, I, w- I had expectations. <laughs> let's, let's order up the charter bus for like my 10 students, and we're going to like roll this bus up. It's going to be a party bus. It's going to be fantastic. Oh, wait, we don't have the budget for that. What do I have? I, okay, I have a church van, but not the church van we have now. If you think that church van isn't good, may I remind you of its predecessor, 
This is the church van. I kid you not. I had to bug bomb before camp because it got infested with roaches. Okay? Right? Thank you. That's what I'm dealing with. So I'm smoking that thing out with Raid in anticipation of taking students up to camp. Right? I wipe out all the cockroaches. I load up the kids. And we're going up to camp. But we also had to have a second vehicle. And so we borrowed a student's dad's van. And I'm like, okay, fine. It's got wheels. We'll take it. Load them up and let's go. Now, if you remember the old church van, it was just trash. I hate, my soul hates that thing. And so we're driving it up to camp. And halfway up the mountain, this thing starts blowing smoke like a chain smoker. And I mean, it's just pouring out of the hood. But it starts off in like that light gray smoke. And as a like 24-year-old youth pastor, not a mechanic, I'm like, okay, okay, we can do this. We can do this. It's just, we got to cool this baby down. Let's pull over to the side. We're going to make it. And so we're going up the mountain. I pull off to the side. I kind of, I lift the hood thinking I have any idea of what I'm doing. But I just lift the hood to make the students feel better. Like, oh, don't worry. Ryan knows what he's doing. And I'm in the hood going, I have no clue what to do. Okay. All right, you guys. We prayed about it. We're going to be good. So we close the hood. We get back in the van, and I am just praying my way up the mountain with this thing. So we get to camp by the grace of the Lord Jesus. We get to camp. Now, we're the last ones to camp because nobody else's car blew up on the side of the road. We're the last ones to camp. And the way the camp works is you pull in the driveway, and now all the other buses are lined up. All the other charter buses are lined up. And the students are all getting their luggage out of their buses. And here comes GGFC rolling hard into the driveway. Now, by now, the light gray smoke looks like we're, we got in a dogfight, and this thing's on fire. It's blowing thick black smoke. I got the windows down because it's starting to come in through the floor vents. And I got the windows down, and this thing is like just sputtering in the driveway. And I'm kind of rolling in there like, yep. Small church ministry, baby, here we are. And I roll in, the, the van just dies in the spot. And smoke's pouring out, the doors fly open, and here comes GGFC as we walk out of the van. Now, the other van, which I figured would have no problem whatsoever, it pulls up next to us. And I walk up, kids, to get them out of the van. And we open up the door. And I did not know, but one of our students, the van, I guess, is where her dad went to smoke pot instead of in the house. And so we throw open the van doors, and I'm like, oh, Lord Jesus. (laughs) Now I got half my youth group stepping out of a burning van. The other half smells like they just hotboxed on the way up to camp. (laughs) And we're walking out, and I'm just... We here for a week in ministry. This is not my expectation. Half my youth group smells like they're doing drugs together. The other half smells like a barbecue from the truck. And I'm walking up, I'm like, God, this is not my expectation for youth ministry. And I remember that. And it turned out it was one of those things where you have tradition now as a church. Not the right ones, but you have tradition. And I look back on that, I'm like, man, Lord, my expectation for youth camp were up there, and then you brought me here. Now, it turned out to be a great week at camp. It started a little shaky, but it got better from there. And so we all have those, those are funny times where you look back on them and you're like, oh man, that's, those are good times now. I love those. But then there are other unmet expectations too. And we're like, God, what are you doing here? I can laugh about that one, but I'm not laughing about this one. What, what, are, what are you doing here, God? You're going to own this, you say. You're the one behind this. 
But what do I do with my unmet expectations? And sometimes we're so desperate to explain our unmet expectations that we fail to see the purpose God has in them. And so oftentimes, let's look at uh, Romans chapter 8, right? We've talked about bumper sticker theology before, and the church has done a really good job of bumper sticker theology with this one too. Romans 8.28. Now, there is amazing, profound, beautiful truth in Romans 8.28 because God makes a promise to his people. And this is what he says. And we know that in all things, right? When God says all, he means all. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. And so we read that. That's good theology, that we have a good, good father who cares about our needs. And we read that, but then we also go through life and we have tons of unmet expectations. And I'm like, God, you tell me everything's going to work for my good. But then we always forget that there's that second part of verse 8 or verse 28. He's going to work all things to the good for those who are what? called according to his purposes. And oftentimes in our unmet expectations, the problem is not that God's not doing good things. The problem is you and I and God have begun to define the good thing very differently. My good thing is that my expectation be met. And then I look at scripture, and I don't know where you and I ever get the impression that the idea God has defined as good is that all of my expectations get met. Because when we see and we read scripture, we see that when God means good, the highest good, the highest priority and value for him is his glory. And so all things working to our good is rooted and wrapped in his glory. That's what we were made for. And you have to flip there, but we look at Isaiah 43, verse 7, and God speaks to his people, and he says this, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. So until you and I understand that we were created for his glory, and therefore everything about your existence is rooted and purposed in his glory, until you get that, your definition and God's definition of good are going to constantly seem like they're on opposite sides of the table. And you're going to sit with unmet expectations. God, this, you want me in Jerusalem. How could you want me in Babylon? You want me here. This is good by my definition. Does it bring me glory, Ryan? Well, kind of. I can make it fit. He's worried about his glory. His glory defines our good. And until you and I come to the same conclusion as God about what good means, we're going to sit here with unmet expectations, wondering why the scriptures don't seem to be true. Because my good is not happening. Because I have unmet expectations. And so one other thing we have to kind of note here, as you talk about an unmet expectation in your life, There's a difference between God having you in a place or a season that is stretching you and is uncomfortable for you and is growing you, and there's a difference between those things and you being in an abusive, dangerous, sinful place. So if you find yourself in an abusive, bad relationship, do not misunderstand the scriptures. Well, this is my Babylon, and I just got to stick it out. No, abusive is abusive, sinful is sinful, dangerous is dangerous. Flee those things. But what we're talking about 
here and where I think most of us are sitting this morning is my unmet expectations where I'm not getting my way and I'm not comfortable like I want to be. See, there's a difference there between abusive and dangerous and uncomfortable and stretching. And we need to know the difference as we continue on in God's word. All right, but let's continue in Jeremiah 29. It keeps going. Let's look at verses 8 through 9, right? In verses 5 through 7, God gives them the bad news they don't want to hear. Like, build a house, plant your gardens, get married, have babies, give your babies away in marriage. You're going to be here for a while. Not the news they're hoping for. And then we see what happens, like the Israelites are just like you and I. What, what happens when God gives me news I don't want to hear? Well, I must have heard him wrong, right? Let, let's, go, let's go look for another answer. And look at verses 8 and 9. Now, the Israelites decided, mm, I don't like that prophecy. Who's got something else for me? And what do you got to say? And God says this, yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you, right? Notice he doesn't say my prophets. Those aren't my prophets. The prophets and diviners among you, do not let them deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. It's almost like God knows us. I don't like where God has me. This cannot be what God wants for me. Lord, raise up a prophet for me who will speak to me your true desires. Israelites are no different than us. So they start to look for these prophets. And the prophets that he's talking about in verse 8 and 9 are like, hey, it's, it's going to be a quick stop, right? Don't even unpack your bags because we're going back to Jerusalem. This was all a mistake, and we're heading back home. Don't even bother unpacking. And then God says, no, unpack and build a house because you're going to be here a while. But you and I have that same tendency. When we have unmet expectations, man, you and I are looking for validation elsewhere. This can't be true because God doesn't want me here in this season, in this place, in this relationship. It's not supposed to be this way. So let's, who can tell me something else? And so we start to wander around and looking for those other options. And we surround ourselves with people who will validate our unmet expectations. We surround ourselves with people who are going to tell us what we want to hear. And there's a great example of this. Go to 2 Chronicles. For some of you who didn't even know that was a book in the Bible, fear not. Use the table of contents. Second Chronicles, back in the Old Testament. In Second Chronicles 18, this is the point in Israel's history, before the exile, but the kingdom has been split. There's a north and a south, and they've got two different kings. And in Second Chronicles 18, the kingdom has split. They kind of don't, they're starting to not like each other, but they're still related, right? Anybody got family like that? And so the kingdom is split. And in 2 Chronicles 18, King Ahab in the north invites King Jehoshaphat from the south to come. Now they're related by marriage. And King Ahab invites him to come have dinner. And he wants to kind of spitball a plan with him about going to war against a common enemy. And we tune in. Let's, let's join the passage in verse 5. Right, so they have dinner. King Ahab says, hey, would you join me and we will go to war against Ramoth Gilead? We'll do this together. And 2 Chronicles 18, verse 5 says this. So the king of Israel brought together... I'm sorry, go back a verse. I apologize. Verse 4. So Jehoshaphat replied, I am as you are and my people as your people. We're kin. We will join you in the war. But 
Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, first seek the counsel of the Lord. That's the one thing Ahab does not want to do. Join me. Let's do this plan together. We don't need, let's not bring the Lord into this. But Jehoshaphat says, no, 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 let's, let's seek the counsel of the Lord. If the Lord says, let's do it, then I'm with you and let's do it. And then verse five. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets, 400 men, talk about overkill, 400 men, and he asked them, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I not? Now Ahab knows these are 400 yes men. So he's gathered 400 people and he says, should we go to war? He knows what he's going to hear because he surrounded himself with people who will validate what he wants to hear. And they answered, go, for God will give it into the king's hand. I can picture there's 400 people going, yep, that's a good plan. Go for it. But Jehoshaphat asked, is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? Jehoshaphat's not fooled. He sees 400 yes men. He knows a guy who surrounded himself with nodding heads who will tell you whatever you want to hear. And you and I do the same thing. We surround ourselves with people who we know because they love us and care for us that they're just going to say yes to anything. Like, hey, I'm thinking I want to do this. Sure, yeah. Sounds like a great idea. You should definitely do that. 400 nodding heads. And then verse 7, the king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, there's still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me. In essence, I got 400 guys who tell me exactly what I want to hear. Is there anybody who can actually speak the truth? All right, there was this one dude, but I hate him. Because he always says mean things. He never prophesies anything good about me. He's Micaiah, son of Imla. So can you imagine the level of self-deception in King Ahab's life? Dude's totally cool with having 400 yes men. And oftentimes, you and I look at that like, oh, that's, that's crazy. I would never do that. But then look at the decisions you're making. Are you actually asking yourself about these unmet expectations? Lord, what are you trying to do in this season? Or are you looking for the people you've surrounded yourself to validate you getting out of that? Where are my people who will encourage me to do what I already know I want to do? I don't need to seek the counsel of the Lord. And the passage continues. Look at verse 11. So all the other prophets were prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious, they said, for the Lord will give it into the king's hand. Gotcha, tracking. Now the messenger who had gone to summon Micaiah said to him, look, the other prophets without exception are predicting success for the king. Let your words agree with theirs and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, as surely as the Lord lives, I can tell him only what my God says. 400 people might be validating for you what you want to hear. But my question, my challenge is you deal with your unmet expectations. So you have people around you who are going to be like Micaiah, who are going to look you in the eye and say, Ryan, I know this is tough for you. I know you're struggling with this. I know it's an uncomfortable season. I know what you want. 
But man, brother, let me just tell you, I, I think God might have something for you in that unmet expectation. And so I know your heart just wants to bounce out of it. But I think the Lord is challenging you to stay and make an exchange. Give up that unmet expectation. It's junk anyway. And trust that God's got a better plan for you. Trust that he has a better way. And so that's why we always talk about biblical community here as being so important. Because your family and your friends who don't know Jesus, they love you. But they might just be one of those 400 who love you and they want what's best for you. And oftentimes that will just mean validating whatever you say is best for you. And it's so important that you and I as followers of Jesus have people around us in biblical community who are going to be like, no, I'm going to speak to you what the Lord wants me to share. And it might not mean you're going to hear what you want to hear. But we need those people. You need to find yourself some people like Micaiah who are going to speak that truth to you even when it doesn't necessarily line up with what you want to hear. You need those people in your life. And the text continues in Jeremiah. Let's look at verse 11, right? Here's one of the, perhaps one of the most famous passages in Scripture. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you've probably heard this echoed throughout your Christian circles. This is where God gets to it. He says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And here's what I want to point out from that. There's a lot that you could dig out of that verse. But look at the tense that God talks about having plans. For I know. I know right now. In the present tense, I know the plans I have for you. You might not know the plans he has for you. In fact, most often, you don't know the plans he has for you. That's what's so frustrating about following Jesus. God says, I know the plans I have for you. So you're sitting here in an unmet expectation. It's confusing. It's discouraging. It's stretching your faith. But maybe the Lord's encouraging you and inviting you this morning to exchange that. Say, Lord, here's my unmet expectation. I'm going to give it to you. And I'm going to trust that right now, in this very moment, you know the plan you have for me, even if I don't. And it's going to stretch my faith to do it, but I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to sit and rest in the fact that you know the plan. And if you know the plan right here, right now, and you're not just figuring it out as we stumble along, my faith can rest in that, and I can be okay with it. We went camping this last weekend, or this last week, right, because everybody wanted to spend Thanksgiving in a trailer in the rain and cold. But that's what we did. It was fantastic. And so the first day, we've loaded all the kids in the car, and we're driving out there. Now, my expectation was it would be easy, because I'm a fool. And so we load in the car. I figure it's going to take us just a little bit to get there. We'll check everybody in, and it's just going to go swimmingly. Like five hours later, we're still sitting in the car. It's raining outside, and we're still trying to get things going. And now my children are in this beautiful season where they've learned to read time. It's a terrible thing because they love to call me out on it. I can no longer just lie to them and tell them it's any time I want it to be. And so my kids are in the back seat, and they're picking up that I have no clue what I'm doing at this point. I don't know. It's raining outside. I'm sitting in a parking lot. I'm argue-conversing with my wife about how we're going to do this. 
and my boys are in the back seat, and Camden, my spicy middle one, is looking at the clock going, it's 5.30. We've been in the car for a long time. I'm like, I know, guy, okay, I get it. I, I'm like, of course, buddy, but it's all going to be okay. Now, God knows the plans he has, and I just wanted to kind of like tell him, like, can mom just raise the window a little bit, and can mommy and daddy have a mommy-daddy council right now? Well, I need to look over to her and be like, baby, the little people know that we have no clue what's going on right now. I don't know what's going on. It's raining outside. I'm trying to get people in and set up. At this point, I have no clue, and the little people are starting to catch on. I don't know the plans I have. And oftentimes, I'm sitting in the back seat, and I'm looking forward, and I'm thinking, does God know the plan? My faith is beginning to waver. Because I'm looking at it, and I'm like, I don't think he knows. Because if he knew, I wouldn't be in Babylon. And the beauty of Scripture says this, he knows in this very moment the plan he has for you. And man, my prayer for you guys, for all of us, is that we would take that unmet expectation and exchange it for his plan. Even, and and with almost a guarantee that you're not going to know what that plan is. You're not. But he has it. And can your faith sit and rest in that tension? I believe he knows even if he doesn't share it with me. And my faith is totally comfortable sitting in limbo, waiting for him to tell me, what's next. And it doesn't necessarily have to be what I want to be next. It doesn't necessarily have to be what I expect to be next, but I can rest and trust that he's got a plan. And there's this beautiful story in scripture. Go to Judges 7. I love the Old Testament. It's filled with people like me. So Judges 7 is the story of Gideon. Gideon's a prophet called by, or a judge called by God to meet a specific need in this point in Israel's history. So Gideon gets called up in chapter 6 to go and lead the armies of Israel. Now, there's a whole lot of character flaw going on in Gideon's backstory. If you were to choose a guy to lead God's people, like, you would not choose Gideon. This dude is so plagued by doubt and insecurity and fear and questioning, I wouldn't trust him to go to the grocery store. And yet, God calls him to lead his people as a judge. And then here's where we pick up the story in Judges 7. And I really encourage you, read Judges 6 and 7 this week. And you will be inspired to know that God has used people far worse than you. Look at Judges 7, and we'll pick it up in verse 4. So Gideon has 30,000 warriors with him. And God says, hey, these 30,000 brothers are going to go with you, and they're going to go into battle, and you're going to be victorious. I'm going to be with you. Gideon, plagued by doubt, plagued by insecurity, and a lack of confidence, is kind of stumbling his way forward in faithfulness. But he's got 30,000 people alongside him. So that's got to bring you some comfort, right? And look at this. Now God starts to change the plan. And I want you to put yourself in Gideon's, in his shoes or slippers or sandals or whatever he wore. Verse 4, but the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. This is after 20,000 have already left. Now he's down to 10,000. There's still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongue as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs, and all the rest 
got down on their knees to drink. Put yourself in Gideon's shoes. You've been called to lead God's people. You have 30,000, and God says, no, 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 too many. If anybody wants to go home, let them go home. 20,000 go home, which tells you the quality of warrior that you have with you. 20,000 are like, okay, I'm out. 10,000 remain, and God says, too many. Too many people. We need to thin this down. I'm going to help you, Gideon. I got a plan. And Gideon's like, no, my plan was 30,000. Now I got 10,000, and now it's still too many. Okay, I'm going to trust you, Lord. You tell me we're going to have like, the, okay, maybe 10,000 is too much, but we're going to have this elite group, right? Like the best warriors that Israel's got. Are we going to have death match? Like how are we going to, deter- how are we going to determine who the best are? Cage match? And the survival of the fittest will be my warriors? You tell me, God, how are we going to do it? And God says, okay, check it out. Go down to the river. Okay, we're going to fight in the river, and then the warriors will rise? No, just go down to the river. Okay, all right, let's go down the river, guys. God's got a plan. We get down there. All right, now, check it out. Anybody who drinks like a dog, that's your man. Drinks like a dog. That's your plan. I, I can, I can, I'm down with 300 if they're like the crack warriors, like they're the best of the best. But no, who drinks like a dog out here? All right, you, you, you're my people, let's go. To be honest, if I'm going to battle, I don't know if I want to go with people who drink like dogs. Just me personally. And yet that's God's plan. And every step of the way, God has a plan, and yet it's different than the plan Gideon has. Maybe you can relate in your life. Here's the thing. Gideon's plan was with the 30,000. But here's what would have happened. If you take 30,000 into battle and they fight, thousands will die. But in Gideon's mind, that's the best plan possible. We got to fight. So 30,000 will go, some will die, but God says we're going to win. So after he gets the 300 dog, not dog lickers, sorry, (laughs) dog drinkers, dog lickers, that's not scripture. After he gets the 300 dog drinkers, What's the plan now, God? Now we only got 300, so maybe we can pick out the best equipment. Okay, here, check it out. In your one hand, why don't you take your trumpets? And in your other hand, I want you to take a torch. Where do I carry my sword? No, 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 just trumpets and torches. Am I going to band practice? What are we doing here, God? Trust me, 300 people, trumpets, torches, and we're going to win this thing. Can you imagine being Gideon? No, this is not my plan. This is not anybody's plan, to be real. And God says, no, do it. And then what happens, the narrative unfolds, 300 stand with trumpets and torches in the middle of the night. They blow the trumpets, it awakes the enemy army, and then God sends a panic throughout the army, and they literally start killing each other for the Israelites. And then they hold up the torches. They scare them, they kill each other, and then they run, and the Israelites pursue them and slaughter them on the way. And no Israelites are recorded as dying. And then you look back a couple verses. Gideon's plan was 30,000, and yes, some will die, but will still win. And then God says, no, 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 
if they drink like a dog, give them a trumpet and a torch, and then we're going to win this thing. And no Israelites die. And so here's the invitation. Man, that's a stretch of faith. If that's not a stretch of faith for you, like, tell me your secrets. For me, that'd be a stretch of faith. And here's, in your life, God's calling you to exchange your unmet expectation and in faith to take his plan, even if his plan is 300 dog lappers with trumpets and torches. And this plan makes no sense to you. This plan is stretching you beyond anything you've ever imagined or experienced. And God says, follow me in this. My prayer is that you and I would have the faith to say, I'll go with you. Even if the plan doesn't make sense, Every step of the way, the plan doesn't make sense either. It's not like you take one step and then revelation and it's all good. Every step of the way, it got worse and worse and worse until God made known the purpose. And let's close with this. We go back to Jeremiah. Look at 29, verse 13. And here's the challenge as we, as we depart from Scripture today. Verse 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And here's what I want to throw before you. You cannot seek him with all your heart if you're holding on to unmet expectations. You can't. Because those expectations will constantly distract you. They will derail you. They will deter you. You can't seek him with your whole heart and bring your unmet expectations along for the ride. And so my prayer would just jettison those. That you would give God your expectations and say, they're yours. What's your better plan? That plan's going to stretch you. It's going to push your faith to places you've never imagined and never wanted to go. My prayer is as a church, as a community, and as individuals here, that we would have the faith to make the exchange for his better plan. Would you pray with me?